Good morning, everyone. Uh, so there's not a PowerPoint for uh, for this lesson. So um, yeah, Brandon, remember you got the closing prayer. Jason, you have the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna turn this turn this off. Um, it's very very good to be back um, in Savannah. Uh, I was gone for two weeks, just about, and just miss you all very very much, and uh, miss everybody who's who's not here as a part of the group. Um, I forgot to announce uh, Jason's wife, Marie. Uh, Marie's not here because the kids, I know at least Walden is uh, still a little sick. So Marie's at home taking care of the kids. So just there's so many who are out sick. Um, so there's still many, many faces uh, yet to see coming back to Savannah. But really just missed everybody here very, very much. And uh, even I are so glad to be back. Um, so the lesson this morning is going to be in Psalm 22. But I want to start in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, with just a very familiar anthem. Um, Hebrews 12, uh, just the beginning of Hebrews 12, I think is, is such an incredible anthem of faith. It's, it's a helpful verse to just have in your mind and have in your heart. It's, it's very motivating, convicting, encouraging, inspiring. So I want to I start here. And, and the title of the lesson this morning is The Fellowship of Jesus' Joy. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews 12, particularly verse 2, and really considering where Jesus' joy came from and how we can strive to share in that joy and share in it together. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we're still going to be centering on Psalm 22 in just a moment. Um, But just to introduce the lesson, the fellowship of Jesus' joy, uh, I'm going to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself." so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Um, what I want to center on in this verse in verse, verse 2 is that the cross fundamentally both built and changed Jesus' expectations in his life, his uh, associations in his life, and the valuations of his life. Um, I think we see that here in verse 2, that Jesus expected that through the cross there would be something that God would do and accomplish. Um, We've talked in the past, and I'd like to reiterate this point, that Jesus enduring the cross was not, the joy of enduring the cross was not Jesus escaping the troubles of the world. Um, It was the end of one ministry in his earthly life and the ministry of the Old Covenant But really the cross was Jesus' entrance into a new and living way, a new ministry that he inaugurated through us through the veil being his flesh. That God is not less active than he was in the old covenant. God is actually much more active in the new covenant. And so the joy set before Jesus was not that he's seated on the throne of God, kind of watching us like someone watches TV and kind of wishing us luck as we work out our own salvation here But really, Jesus' prayer in John 17 at the end of his life was for more unity to be accomplished through his suffering, through his resurrection. So we'll be exploring that joy in this lesson more. 
But I just want to put that into your mind, that the joy that was on the other side of the cross was not a joy of escaping the problems of life and finally being able to relax and get rest, but it was really a greater joy of being able to serve in a ministry and capacity that was simply not possible in the Old Covenant or even in his earthly life, as limited as that was, him being just in one place at one time. So we see Jesus' expectations there, but also I think the joy set before him in verse 2, you see Jesus' associations. That Jesus was constantly striving to associate himself more and more with God's people. And so the hope that Jesus had, the expectations that he had, that were built by God and by his promises, what that did was it, it pushed Jesus to have a zeal and a hope for serving the needs of God's people and constantly recommitting himself to those needs. And then his valuations. How did Jesus value things? How did Jesus value people? It was all built on the cross. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 11, I think there's a reflection of this with Moses. In Hebrews 11 verse 24, that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But in verse 25 and 26, he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the passing pleasures of Egypt. Um, for he was looking to the reward. Um, so Moses, in a sense, for the joy set before him, endured the reproach of being associated with God's people rather than enjoying the leisurely benefits of having the position of authority he had in Egypt and Pharaoh's household. And so Moses, not being better than Jesus, obviously, um, Jesus in his life, what Jesus was seeking was not disassociation, but only further association. Maybe think about it just one more way. Um, when you really have compassion on somebody, when you love someone who's in a position of great need or affliction, does it give you joy to be separated from that person? To be separated from being able to assist in their need or help in any way, but only being able to watch from a distance? What brings you more joy? To have greater association, to be able to better help bear that need, or to be distant and detached from that need? Now, when you have compassion on someone in affliction, what brings you joy is having association with that need, being able to help, serve, bear that burden. So again, with this lesson is, how do we have fellowship with Jesus' joy that he had in looking forward to the ministry that he would inherit on the other side of his suffering on the cross? How do we share in Jesus' expectations and associations, the valuations that he had? And I really want to start with where he would have learned these things as a foundation. And that's where we're going to go in Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22 really has two major sections. And I think one section of Psalm 22 tends to be the more well-known section. And that's the section that deals with the suffering of the writer. So if you look at its heading above verse 1, you'll see the psalm is written by David, but this psalm very famously conveys a lot of images of the cross. And I just very br briefly want to walk you through a few of those places in the psalm that point to the fulfillment being in Jesus' suffering on the cross. And I think this psalm, really more than any other psalm in the book of Psalms, maybe more than most other places in the Bible, has more direct references specifically to the cross that are quoted or directly fulfilled than any other place. So Psalm 22, verse 1. 
Jesus quotes this in Matthew 27, verse 46, when he's being crucified. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look down in verse 8, in Matthew 27, verse 43, the Jewish leadership, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, uh, they say this to Jesus, I think unaware that they're actually quoting and fulfilling what David wrote about what God's enemies were saying to him. It says, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. Again, that's what the Jewish leaders were saying to Jesus to mock him while he was being crucified. If you look at verse 16, so this is not directly quoted, um, but if you look at verse 16, the, the um, latter statement in the psalm, uh, in the verse rather, it says, they have pierced or they pierced my hands and my feet. And I think David is poetically expressing things in the psalms that Jesus more literally fulfilled. I think David in the psalm is uh, poetically and prophetically really seeing himself in a situation where his enemies had won and escape was impossible. Uh, he was thrown in the midst of his enemies. They were surrounding him, he says in verse 12. His hands and feet were pierced, which poetically conveys the fact that it's impossible to escape. They've, they've pinned him down, just as Jesus uh, prophetically, in its fulfilled sense, was literally pinned on the cross. And then if you look at verse 18, this is quoted in John 19, verse 24. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, defeat is so sure, and David is so far gone in defeat that it's like a hunter who has caught and killed the animal that they've been hunting, kind of like taking a deer's antlers as a prize of victory. David's defeated. It's conveying a situation where they're already taking the trophies of the battle. It's, it's over. But it's at this point that David is still crying out to God in verse 19 when hope seems to be completely gone and when it seems foolish to think that there could even be a possibility of deliverance anymore, still David is crying out to God, Lord, be not far off. And the latter part of the psalm will see more, conveys this joy that was set before Jesus that he learned and embraced. So before that though, I want to look at verses 1 through 5 and some statements here at the beginning of the psalm that Jesus, I think, would have adapted in his thinking towards the cross that we can learn from to really begin to share in the joy that Jesus saw on the cross and what came through it. Um, let's look at Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5, before we look further at the second half of the psalm, the half that deals with deliverance. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So just like I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, I think there's three things that we see here that are just helpful to try to take from the text. Um, I think we see in these first five verses expectations. If you look at verses four and five, rather starting in verse three, uh, where he's talking about God being enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Um, if you look at the end of the psalm, in verse 22, I will tell your name of the, 
uh, to my brother in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Why? Verse 24. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Uh, the end of the verse, when he cried to him for help, he heard. So when he's talking about being enthroned on the praise of Israel, in the Psalms you see a consistent thread woven through the tapestry of the book that praise comes on the other side of deliverance. So what David sees and what ultimately Jesus would embrace himself in a greater way is that no matter what happened to him, no matter what happened to David, that God was enthroned upon the praise he received from delivering his people. You see that further four times in verses 4 and 5. There's a pause at the beginning of this psalm remembering God did not disappoint Israel at the very beginning. When they came to the Red Sea in Egypt, when they thought hope was gone and that they were going to be overtaken by their enemies, when it seemed like hope was not possible and they were only going to be defeated when they were outnumbered, they trusted in God. He delivered them. They cried out to God. He delivered them. They trusted God at the end of verse 5 again, the third time this is stated, and they were not disappointed. We need to learn in whatever circumstance to have the same mentality, to learn to pause and remember God never fails to keep his promises. That what God has done once in the beginning, he will always be faithful to complete to the end. And so in verse 3 at the beginning of the verse, the first statement that David makes here that again, Jesus would have adapted and fulfilled is that God is holy. God is not defined by our emotions in a moment. God is not defined by the trials of our circumstance. God is not defined by what I might think in a moment or how my mind may change in the moment. That what the psalmist is doing is remembering that even though things in verse 2 look hopeless, it looks like God is not answering and shutting out his cries, God is not defined by what may seem most apparent in the moment, God is defined by what he's done and communicated in his word. And that holds greater truth than any circumstance. By the way, do you see how liberating that is? That no matter what happens to me, I can always rest on the fact that God is true and faithful. What the psalmist is describing here, in a way, is in a sense, in a sense, a blind faith. I think when the world talks about a blind faith, they get it completely wrong, right? So our faith is based on the evidence of who God is, the evidence of his word, the evidence of what God has done. But if you look at the beginning of verse 6, the psalmist says, I'm a worm and not a man. And I've heard it pointed out about this, something that I thought was very helpful. A worm can't see, a worm can't hear, a worm may feel the vibrations of what's going on around them, but they can't look at a beautiful sunset. They can't appreciate the heights of a mountain or the depths of the sea. A worm sees nothing and hears nothing and hardly knows anything that's going on around it. So in the same way, the psalmist is saying, God, I can't see everything. I don't know everything, but I can trust in you. You are the anchor of my circumstance. And so in a sense, it is a blind faith in that while the psalmist can't see everything, can't know everything, doesn't know how everything is going to turn out, at the very least and most significantly, he knows that God's character is absolute, it is proven, and God always keeps his promises. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Um, and I think the Hebrew writer earlier in the book communicates something really significant related to this idea. In Hebrews chapter 5, 
Rather, it's, it's verse 6. Uh, rather, Hebrews chapter 6. Chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. So as much as David was able to communicate these things, again, in poetic, prophetic ways, but still communicated by David, um, in verse 17 of Hebrews 6 it says, In the same way, uh, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, and that is us, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a foreigner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Why do we need an anchor? Um, I just did a quick Google search and just typed that in. Like, what does an anchor do or why do we need an anchor? And obviously an anchor holds a boat steady. Um, But what you find in Google and just an easy definition is an anchor keeps a vessel in one place, steady, um, to combat the wind or currents that would move it off course. And so David can see in the psalm that his trials, his tribulations, he's, he's not in control. He can't take control of the situation. He can only trust that God can be faithful in this situation. And that anchor of holding to God's character and the faithfulness of what God has done keeps him steady in a situation where he could very easily go off course. And as the psalm progresses, and as we know about Jesus, God absolutely did not fail. So David had an expectation. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus would have heard these things right in synagogues as he was growing up. So when you think about this, how did Jesus treat the Old Testament? Was it just like a nice book of history, just kind of generally knowing, well, this is where I came from? Um, Was it just a book of good practices to go to the temple, make sure things are being done lawfully? What was Jesus needing to learn the most from the Old Testament? He was needing to learn to trust God, love God, and be anchored in God in a way where he could commit himself to God's promises and trust him when all else seemed to catastrophically fail. And that would have defined then, that hope, that anchoring hope, would have defined Jesus' valuations. That Jesus, more than he valued how he was treated, more than he valued what people could do for him, more than he valued convenience or comfort, Jesus was willing to set all of that aside for the value of what God was able to accomplish on on the other side of the cross to complete his promises. So Jesus valued God more than all else. And his associations, we're going to see that at the end of the psalm in the second part of it, that Jesus was willing to suffer at the hands of his brethren to be able to then recommit himself to his enemies to serve their repentance, to serve their reconciliation, and to serve their relationship with God. The great mystery of the psalm that is made clear in Jesus is the people that David is talking about here, those are the very people that Jesus would have joy serving to reconcile them with God. The mystery of the psalm is those persecuting David, in a fulfilled sense, that's us living in sin against Jesus. 
And his ministry of reconciliation puts us on the other side of the psalm to see that joy. So again, think about the ideas of the valuations, the expectations and associations that we see in Jesus through this psalm, things that he would have learned and embraced and trained himself to embody and trust in as the psalm states. Look at verse 19 is where we're going to start. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. So just pause really quick. Again, I just want to emphasize this situation looks too far gone. When he says from the power of the sword, it's, it's as if David's been cut through, like the fatal blow's been dealt. Save me from the lion's mouth. David is in the mouth of the lion. It's, it's over. He's being devoured. And then he says from the horns of the wild ox, it's as if he's already been impaled by the ox. But he says from the horns of the wild ox, you answer me. And notice in verse 22, the dramatic shift in tone to the rest of the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow down before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So I think this part of the psalm is dealing with the ministry of Jesus's joy. And just really quick in verse 22, um, this I think is the transition verse. So verse 21 ends with uh, David, again, in a poetic and prophetic way, proclaiming that God has delivered him and heard him from the point of what seems like absolute hopeless defeat. And then in verse 22, you have this very sudden shift in tone where now all of a sudden it's in the tone of deliverance and it's exuberance and things are being said with such certainty and joy and freedom. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. This statement is actually quoted I think in relation to Jesus' ministry after the cross. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Again, just another part of the psalm that is quoted in association with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Notice he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's a quotation from Psalm Psalm, Psalm 22 verse 22, after in verse 10 and 11 saying that Jesus, out of necessity, needed to share in flesh and blood so that he could redeem us and grant us salvation. If you look in verse 14, he says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, 
that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So with Psalm 22, I think you see at the first half of the psalm is God was fighting for ownership and so was Jesus. That Satan wanted to make it seem as though there was no hope in Jesus' work to redeem God's people. That it wasn't worth it. That the value that God would place upon his people, it's just not worth the cost, right? And think about the association. Satan was trying to do everything that he could to stop Jesus from continuing to associate with God's people, the people that God had promised would be his inheritance. But what was proven through the cross? You are worth more. Jesus' valuations, Jesus' value in himself was not defined by his circumstance. The value that he placed upon himself was not how other people were treating him or honoring him because as we know from Jesus' life and the fulfillment of his life in the cross, and as we see in the psalm, um, Jesus was not valued the way that God valued Jesus. How would Jesus read and understand the Old Testament? he would need to understand the value that God the Father placed on him despite all else. That no matter what he suffers, no matter what people do to him, in verse 24, God does not despise nor abhor the affliction of the afflicted. And why would there be so much joy in that? I had a conversation with someone a little while ago. Um, This was a person who had made... Uh, some pretty poor choices in their life and they were in a very difficult position because of their choices. And they had mentioned to me that uh, a father figure in their life had told them one time that they really weren't worth anything and that the only way to solve his problems was if he would just jump off a bridge. And that was told to him by a father figure that to solve your problems, the best thing you can do is just, just jump off a bridge. And his mom had been remarried, so one father figure told him that and the other had told him, you know, you're just really not worth anything. And do you know why there was joy in enduring the cross? Look at verse, um, verse 26, at the end of the verse, where it says, those who seek him will praise the Lord, let your heart live forever. The idea of the heart living forever in the Psalms, there's another Psalm that says, let your heart revive. It's the idea of losing hope or feeling hopeless or discouraged or brokenhearted. When he says, let your heart live forever, it's the idea that there's always hope with God, that Jesus' death on the cross would prove that our value is not based in our past. Our value is not based in decisions we've made in our past. Our value is not based in what people have said to us or how people have treated us. Our value is not based on what we've been able to accomplish in life for better or for worse. But ultimately, what can be said to somebody because of Jesus in a situation where they feel no sense of worth, where they feel like their life circumstances are just a dumpster fire, where they've been told by significant figures in their life that they're not worth anything, what can be said to a person like that with all boldness 
is you are worth everything to God. God loves you and you can be certain of it. That God loves you like nobody else can. God will take care of you like nobody else ever will. God will love you. He will provide for you. He will protect you. Why did Jesus have joy through the cross? Because it wasn't just that Jesus had an expectation that God would deliver him, but that Jesus would then be equipped as a priest to serve giving that hope to others as well. And so because of the cross, there is always hope. There's no lengths to how far God's hope can reach. That we can know that no matter what our circumstances in life are, God can restore us. God can heal our hearts. God is willing to redeem our soul. God is always able to work everything out for good to those who love him. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So Romans 8 is one of my favorite places in the Bible because I think Romans 8 really clarifies what makes the new covenant so significant in its difference to the old covenant. That it's not just we're living in a different set of religious practices and functions. It's not just that local churches operate differently in practice than like the temple system, the altar, and the priests. But it's that there's a greater degree of power and love and hope and promise and service available to God that, again, was simply not possible before. Look at Romans 8.28. There are things that are like this said in the Old Testament, but really it's not until Jesus died where this simple promise could be said. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And from these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So Romans 8.28. What about if we get sick, right? What about if there's some tragedy that comes into our lives? What about if we hit some kind of financial situation where there's bankruptcy or we don't know how we're going to be able to recover financially? What if something changes where people fall away who we love? You know, whatever it is, because of Romans 8.28, that same attitude we see in the psalmist, Jesus has died and risen so that we are given clearer and easier access into that same hope with even greater significance. Something that I've been thinking a lot about that I've been talking to Eve about is just how amazing it is that we can have perfect assurance that as we trust in the Lord, our lives will only get better and better. And that's not out of ignorance of the fact that there could be serious problems that we face in our life in the future. That there could be serious losses, trying circumstances. There could be things that push us to the limit and then push us farther than we think we're capable of handling. Because of Jesus, we can have that faith that we looked at at the beginning of the psalm. That our Father our fathers, our brother, Jesus, they trusted in the Lord. He never failed them. That as they put their hope in him, God protected them through trials, through tribulations. What Jesus did is he frees us from fear of death, like Hebrews 2 says. 
And we can have absolute certainty that even our tribulations are just another tool that God uses to perfect the work of our faith. And there is so much freedom and peace and joy in that. That no matter what happens, no matter what uncertainty I may be confronted with, I can always have the assurance of the psalm and take that personally. That God is holy. And that God's faithfulness is not just all of a sudden undone entirely because I'm suffering some tragedy in some way. But rather that God will work all things out for good. And just as the psalmist may not have understood exactly how that would happen, when that would happen, what that was going to look like, all that matters is ultimately that blind faith, that good blind faith, that God's character has been proven and that Jesus has indefinitely proven it. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You know, so often we can easily treat God like he's our accuser. Like something happens and God must be out to get me, you know. Or something happens to me and I think, well, God must have withdrawn himself from me. Or God, why me? Why are you letting this happen to me? But look at verse 31. What did Jesus die to prove? Satan is an accuser. God is our justifier. No matter what happens in this life, whether it be sickness or tribulation of any kind, no matter what loss, no matter what difficulty, no matter what it is, God is always for us, never against us. He's always working to fulfill his promises to keep them. God will always deliver us. Everything that happens, God is able to rework it and use it still to further his purpose. That if I sin against God and if I repent... God can cause greater grace even to abound through that repentance because of his love and grace available in Jesus Christ. So again in verse 34, Jesus died and raised and he's at the right hand of God interceding. And so in verse 33, God is not bringing a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Back in Psalm 22, look back at that psalm again. Jesus' expectations, his valuations, his associations. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. When we looked at Romans chapter 8, again, the mystery of the psalm is that these are not people who were at peace with God from the beginning and the peace that they have is only growing greater but rather that these are enemies who have been reconciled with God and that Jesus always was striving to recommit himself to God's people. I think what we learn from this psalm is how Jesus read the Old Testament, what he gained from it, that Jesus would prioritize God's work with his people more than anything else. Just like we talked about with the parenting class this morning, you couldn't stop Jesus from attaching himself more and more in his life to God's people. And his death and resurrection was, again, not to detach himself from God's people, but to be even more invested, 
more able to serve needs that were impossible to fulfill in the old covenant system. And so in verse 23, what we see is Jesus was constantly recommitting himself to God's people. In the past year and a half, one of the reflections that I've had with the coronavirus and all of these things, it can be so easy to allow circumstance to dictate my commitment to God's people. Or that if there's some obstacle that gets in the way of routine with assembling or anything like that, it can be easy to almost feel a sense of freedom, right? Like, oh, there's less burdens in my life now because now I'm less attached to God's people, therefore I have less things to worry about, therefore I have more time to myself, more freedom for myself. But that's not the joy of the cross. The joy of the cross was that Jesus saw that God's promises were reserved in the joy of of serving the needs of his promises with his people. Turn to Romans 15, and we'll look at Romans 15, verses 1 through 4. And we'll we'll end with this section here, Romans 15, verses 1 through 4. So the big thing with the psalm is there wasn't some grand obligation given in response. The psalm ends saying, it will be told to a coming generation that the righteousness of God would be proclaimed. The idea is, think about what God has done. That if we really understand what God has done for us, if we really comprehend the work that God accomplished sending Jesus into the world, we will want to serve him and submit to him and attach ourselves to him and love him. But I think Romans 15 does teach us about the necessity of sharing in the joy that Jesus had looking ahead of the cross. Look at Romans 15 verses 1 through 4. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, this is a quote from Psalm 69, another psalm that is very tied in with the principles of the cross. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever it was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So as we read the Old Testament, as we read the New Testament, what should we be getting out of it? What should this be doing to us? What effect should it have? Again, we see in Psalm 22 that when Jesus would have read the Old Testament, what he would have been getting out of that is he would have been striving to know God in a way that motivated him to serve God's people no matter what to be motivated to serve no matter how he would be treated, no matter being abandoned by his closest disciples, no matter being pained and no matter being pushed by Satan to withdraw, Jesus would always push further as was the habit of God through the entire history of the Old Testament. And so through what was written, Jesus was instructed that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, seeing the character of God be constantly being recommitted toward the new covenant, Jesus found hope. In the same way, God is inviting us that we need to change our expectations. That we need to be fixating on the hope of serving others just as Jesus did. We need to see the character of God and how invested and focused God is on primarily serving the spiritual needs of God's people. We need to be attached to each other. There's no such thing as a Christian who is an island to himself. 
But if our expectations and our hopes are changed, if we let God change what we're expecting from him and where he's directing us, this will change our valuations. It'll change fundamentally where we're putting our hearts and what we value the most. And you will know what you value the most because of what you sacrifice the most for. And throughout scripture, we see that sacrifice is the measure of godly commitment. We see in Psalm 22 that Jesus would sacrifice everything for his commitment to God's people. And so in Romans 15 again, verses 1 through 3 particularly, how should this change our associations? Jesus came into into the world not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus learned that joy by being instructed from the things God had done in the past to learn how to presently meet the needs of those around him. And if we're going to have the faith that is carried forward from Jesus, we need to be striving to look for weaknesses that others have that we can bear and help with. We should be striving in verse 2 to please our neighbor for their good, for their spiritual edification. And in verse 3, we need to learn the joy of being like Jesus and not pleasing ourselves, but learning how to please others even at our own expense. Because in verse 4, that's why we have what's written so that we can learn perseverance and encouragement from the scriptures and gain hope. That's where we'll stop the lesson uh, this morning. Um, I appreciate your your time and attention um, with with the lesson. If you're here this morning and you have not um, been buried with Christ in baptism, um, something I I would encourage you to consider is the promises of God and, and what he's done to prove those promises. That God is a faithful father, that he will only protect and provide for our needs, that we are in need of shelter, we are in need of an eternal home, and God offers that home at the expense of his own son. And without God, we take the resources that he offers in his grace without associating ourselves or attaching ourselves with Jesus. And God's grace, in the end, will serve as our judgment. What are we going to do with all that God is offering, all that he's done, all that he's promised? That will be our judgment in the last day. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning to meet your needs in Christ, uh, bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.